Happy Easter. If you're new, my name is Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here at Ridge Church. Glad that you're joining us here today. You know, when I was a young pastor, when I first became a pastor, uh, my very first funeral that I ever officiated at as a pastor was for a man that I'd never met. It was the father of a friend of mine. And my friend came to me and said, would you be willing to do the funeral service? And I said, sure, of course, no problem. And then when he left, I panicked. I went over to a friend of mine who was a pastor and said, help, I don't know anything about doing a funeral. And, uh, and he helped me. And so on the day of the funeral, I got dressed up, my best suit and tie. I went to the funeral home where the service was taking place. It was a, a big funeral home in Vancouver. And when I got there, I was met by the funeral director. And the funeral director was very formal and proper and respectful. And, and I was just young and nervous. And, and so we chatted back and forth for a few moments. And then he said to me, he said, would you like to see the death certificate? I never heard of a death certificate. I said, I don't know, would I? And, uh, and so why, why would I want to see the death certificate? And he said, well, you would want to see the death certificate so that you knew that this person was the right person and that he was actually dead. And in my mind, I was freaking out. I was like, what? What do you mean to know that he's actually dead? Isn't that your guy's job and the right person? I never even met this guy. Like if we opened the coffin and I looked, I wouldn't even know. That's your job. But I didn't. I just calmly said, okay, I think we're good. And got up and, uh, and uh, did the funeral. And, I, and we buried the guy who was dead. And I think we got the right person. Now, I actually, I know we got the right person because I saw the document. I saw this certificate by people who know about death and who did the investigation said, yes, you've got the right person. And in fact, he is dead. Now, the story that we're looking at today, the story of Jesus' resurrection actually begins with the, 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 the writer of the gospel, Mark, presenting us with Jesus' death certificate. Jesus was crucified on a Friday morning. And by three o'clock on Friday afternoon, he had died and they went to take him off the cross. They left him up there for a while. And Mark tells us what happens next. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. Otherwise, it'll be here on the screen. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 42, it says this. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So when when Jesus dies, one of the most respected leaders in the Jewish community, in fact, he was a member of the, the council, Mark says, which was known as the Sanhedrin. He was one of the top 70 leaders of the Jewish people. A guy named Joseph of Arimathea, he comes to take down Jesus' body. But he can't take it down without permission from the, from the, from the governor. And so he goes to the governor, his name is Pilate, and asks for his permission. And Pilate, the governor, he wants to make sure that Jesus is dead. Uh, and so he calls the one man who would know for sure. He calls the centurion. And the centurion comes in and says, yes, Jesus is definitely dead. 
This is the death certificate for Jesus. This is the attestation of two key, highly respected people. One, a leader of the Jewish people. He would have been the equivalent of a member of parliament in that day. And the other a centurion who saw all kinds of death and knew absolutely what a dead body looked like. And they attested before none other than the governor of the entire region of Palestine that Jesus was in fact dead. That they buried the right guy and that he was dead. And he adds two Marys. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Josie, saw exactly where he's buried. Now, the question is why? Why does Mark take all this time to kind of present to us the death certificate of Jesus? And the answer is because what's going to happen next is so wild. It's so strange, so, so weird, so utterly unexpected that, that to fully appreciate what happened and the implications of it, Mark wants us to know that everybody knows that Jesus died that they got the right guy and that he was buried in the right place. Because here's what Mark records happens next. It says this, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Mark tells us that on the day after the Sabbath, so on Sunday morning, Mary and Mary and another lady named Salome went to the tomb where Jesus had been laid. And they knew exactly where it was because they had seen that place. And they knew they'd seen the stone that had been rolled in front of it. And so they had this concern, how would they roll the stone away? And when they get to the tomb, they, they, they have this kind of traumatic experience. First of all, when they get there, the, the stone is rolled away, which they weren't expecting. Then when they walked into the tomb, to their surprise, the body was missing, but there was a man sitting there. Now, in that day, there were all kinds of grave robbers. So you can imagine that they would have, as Mark points out, they would have been alarmed. But it turns out the man isn't a grave robber. He neither tries to attack them nor run away. Rather, he stands there and he explains to them that Jesus isn't here, that he has risen from the grave, that he is alive again. And and that they should go and tell his disciples that Jesus is going to meet them and Peter up in Galilee. And Mark Mark records that the ladies, I mean, they, they were just filled with astonishment and fear and they flee from the tomb. Because, because you see, nothing that happened there was what they had expected. They came to that tomb on that day expecting simply to find a giant stone in the way. And if they managed to get that stone out of the way, to find Jesus' body there. Because you have to understand that what they were doing is part of the Jewish burial ceremony. And the Jewish people took burial very importantly, very seriously. Because you see, you see, 
they believed, and the Bible says that if they failed to bury the dead, that they desecrated the land. And for the Jewish people, the process of burial was a two-step process. The first thing that happened when someone died is that they would put that person in a tomb and then all of the, the loved ones, all of the community would gather around the outside of that tomb and they would have the equivalent of a, of a funeral service there. And when it was done, they would roll a stone in front of that tomb and they would leave that tomb sealed for a year during which time the body would decompose. And then one of the family members would come back and they'd roll that stone out of the way and they would take the bones and they would put them in a, in a stone box called an ossuary with all the other bones from the family. And that would be the permanent resting place for that member. So it was a two-step process that they had. Unless, unless that person was killed in a shameful way. For instance, if they'd been hung on a cross and crucified for allegedly being the king of the Jews. If that was the case, then Jewish law forbid them to be buried in a place of honor. Instead, they had to be buried in a place of shame. And, and the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, had set apart a very specific area with a number of tombs in which those particular bodies could be buried. That's in part, why Joseph of Arimathea, who was part of the council, went to get Jesus' body because he had access to that particular tomb. It's also why Mary and the other Mary went and watched where it, Jesus was buried so that they would know exactly the place. Because you see, sometimes it's claimed that, that the ladies got the wrong location. So the body of Jesus obviously wasn't there, but that he was actually buried somewhere else. But that's not the case. In fact, in fact, pretty much every scholar who studies this, whether they believe in the resurrection or not, believe that Jesus' tomb was indeed empty. But then the other rule that applied when someone died a shameful death was that you were not allowed to have a big funeral service to honor them. It simply wasn't allowed. It was a shameful death. And therefore, the, the, the exception that they made was that if you were close family, you could come and literally go into the tomb itself and mourn privately there. That's why the ladies, when they came, wanted to have that stone rolled away. It's also why they brought these spices so that you could imagine that in that little space, that body would already begin to be decomposing. It would stent, the stench would be incredible. So they put spices on the body so that they could mourn there. That's, that's what's happening here. But, but here's the thing that you have to notice. This is what's going on. And that's this, nobody... No one expected on that day to find anything other than a sealed tomb and Jesus' dead body. And that's, and, and that's why, you know, instead when they met this man, this angel, and he said that Jesus has ridden, risen and that, that, that he would meet them in Galilee, that's why for them it was so strange and so weird and so utterly expected. And that's why they fled from the scene of that tomb. So the question then is this, what happened to Jesus' body? Because people don't just rise from the dead. And, and what accounts for the fact that on this day around the globe, hundreds of millions of people gather to celebrate the resurrected Jesus? Well, there have been a number of theories put forward over the years to try to explain what exactly happened on that day. One of the most common theories is that that Jesus died, that his body somehow was moved, and, and that years later, decades later, 
that the, the early Christians began to write these stories about Jesus rising from the dead, and they simply became these legends that carry on to this day, which seems to make sense, except for that it doesn't. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in, First Corinthians, or in the letter of 1 Corinthians, says this. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now you have to know uh, that the Apostle Paul was not one of the first followers of Jesus. He, he was highly educated and actually deeply opposed to the Christian faith in, until he met the resurrected to Jesus. But notice what he says in this, in this letter that he writes to the church in Corinth. He, he says this, the gospel message, he says, is the one that he received and passed on. And what he's talking about was this phrase here that is written right after this, he says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So what Paul is saying is, he didn't write that. That wasn't original to him. It was something that he learned when he came to faith in Jesus and that he's passing on. And scholars who have looked at this would say, yes, these words, the way they're written, the, the cadence, the, the words that are used, that's not Paul. That was a early Christian summation of what happened to Jesus. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. Now, the thing about it, the thing about it is that we know that the, the letter to the Corinthians was written about 15 to 20 years after Jesus' death. So this isn't something that was written decades and decades later. This was something that had been written fairly soon after. I mean, think about 15 years ago. You can remember 15 years ago. 15 years ago, the year 2007, the first iPhone came out. Now, if I said to you, you know what? 15 years ago, the iPhone came, delivered from alien spaceships by drones to thousands of homes. You'd say, no, no. 15 years ago, Steve Jobs introduced it. He may have been dressed a little bit like an alien, but, but we know exactly what happened. It's only 15 years ago. You don't develop a legend in that time. Plus, Paul lists all kinds of eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. And he says, and most of them are still alive. In other words... Go, talk to these people. They saw the risen Jesus. And, and the encounters that they had with Jesus were not some sort of fleeting glimpses or hallucinations. You know, sometimes, sometimes when somebody that people really love passes away, sometimes, the, you know, they're so heartbroken that if they find themselves at a, at a busy train station or in a busy park, and they, and they look up and they're like, oh, it looks like it's that person. And and they step towards them, but they, the person disappears or, or they turn around and they find out it's not. And, you know, that's not what the Bible is talking about when they talks about the, them meeting the risen Jesus. In fact, Jesus met with all kinds of people in all kinds of different places over a number of days. Peter Williams gives the list. Here's what he says. The resurrected Jesus is recorded as appearing in Judea, 
and in Galilee, in town and countryside, indoors and outdoors, in the morning and the evening, by prior appointment and without prior appointment, close and distant, on a hill and by a lake, and to groups of men and groups of women, to individuals and groups of 500, sitting, standing, walking, eating, and always talking. Many are explicitly up close encounters involving conversations. It's hard to imagine this pattern of appearances recorded in the Gospels and early Christian letters without there having been multiple individuals who claim to have seen Jesus risen from the dead. Very clearly. Whatever it was that happened on that day, it was not some sort of legends that developed decades and decades later. It happened almost instantaneously and immediately among those who spoke of the risen Jesus. So the question then is, well, what else could it be? Well, second theory that's often expounded out there is that it was a hoax. It was an elaborate and intense conspiracy by the early disciples to mislead people in order to start a whole religion. The problem with this, of course, again, is that there were all these so-called witnesses running around that you could go to and say, did you see? And and they would either affirm it or say, no, that, that didn't happen. But on top of that, there are a lot of other reasons why this simply doesn't fly as a hoax. For instance, in the Gospel of Mark and in the other three Gospels, literally in the four sort of official documents outlining the resurrection, outlining the resurrection of Jesus, in every single one, the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection were women. And in that patriarchal society, women were not accepted as being reliable witnesses. Their, their testimony was not accepted in the court because they were women. So if in that day you were trying to, to start a, 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 a conspiracy, the last people that you would choose to be your original witnesses to the, to the resurrection of Jesus would be women. Unless, of course, that's exactly what happened. And then, and then sometimes people say, well, the people in that day didn't just, they, they, they weren't as scientific as us. They were kind of gullible. They, they believed that, you know, a dead person could rise from the grave. So they just bought into the, this, this hoax. You know, to, to say that, I mean, that kind of thinking is just as arrogant as saying that a woman isn't a reliable witness to what it is that she saw. This idea that somehow we're more scientific and we're more smart and we're, we're better understand what death is than they did. I mean, that's just a kind of cultural and, and chronological arrogance that is, is hard to believe. They, they were more accustomed to death, more closely connected to death than most of us. And they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that when a person dies, that they're dead. They weren't gullible about that kind of stuff. In fact, in the pagan world, if you read all of the ancient literature, there is no category for resurrection. I mean, they have all kinds of beliefs about the afterlife and what would happen and and what it would be like and who would be there and all that sort of stuff. But nowhere do they have any concept of people who have died coming back to life in any kind of form. In fact, that belief remains remarkably unchanging over a thousand years from Homer through Plato to Pliny for a thousand years straight in the pagan world, including all of the time that Jesus was alive. And after that, nobody in the pagan world believed in any form of resurrection. 
And in the Jewish world, I mean, in the, in the Jewish world, there was a general concept of resurrection, but it was based on, on one verse out of the Old Testament book of Daniel, where it talks about, in Daniel chapter 12, about uh, those who experience resurrection, that they will shine like bright, the brightness of heaven, it says. So the Jewish people had this vague concept that there would be a resurrection, but their idea was that it would be at the end of time that all the righteous would rise and that they would glow like angels. And yet the gospel's description of the resurrection of Jesus was nothing like that. The, the gospel's description of the resurrected Jesus was neither that he looked angelic nor that he looked like some ghoulish zombie. No, the, the, the resurrected Jesus looked like a normal person, only different. The disciples didn't recognize Jesus until they did. It's kind of like, like if you uh, knew someone when you were a teenager and then you didn't see them for 50 years and you ran into them, you wouldn't recognize them until they explained who they were. And then they're like, oh yeah, of course I recognize you. That's what was, you know, that's how they described Jesus when they saw him resurrected. And Jesus' body was what N.T. Wright, one of the scholars, describes as transphysical. In other words, he could eat fish, he could sit at a table, he could be touched, and yet at the same time, he walked through these locked doors. So, so he, he didn't have, I mean, he didn't have this sort of angelic body, no, nor was he a ghost, he didn't either have a revived human body, he had a new kind of body, a resurrection body. So this wasn't a hoax, because there was no... There was nothing in the ancient world to give it handles. There was, there was no background, no cultural context, no grounding in popular or even scholarly thinking to which a hoax could kind of find the, the, the fertile ground to take root and to begin to grow. All of these concepts that are introduced here were totally new concepts in that world. Major departures from anything that the religion or the culture had thought of to that point. The, this, whatever it is, again, can't be explained as some sort of a hoax. Which leaves one last major argument that is regularly put forward about uh, Jesus' resurrection. And it's, it's an argument often put forward by many New Testament secular scholars. In other words, scholars who study the Bible but don't actually believe in their, for the, personally what it, what it believes or what it says. And they argue this, that Jesus' resurrection is just a way of describing sort of the spirit of Jesus living in these people's hearts. And, uh, and this kind of thinking, I mean, it's made popular uh, regularly over the years. Uh, the most recent guy is Richard Rohr, who, who would say that, uh, that the spirit of Christ is not the same as the person of Christ. In other words, his spirit is alive in us. That's the resurrection we speak of, but the physical Jesus didn't actually rise from the grave. And the thinking goes this way. The thinking goes this way. The disciples were so overwhelmed with grief. And they so wanted Jesus to carry on that after he died, they got together and they said, you know, we feel his presence among us. We have this new sort of spiritual consciousness of him carrying on his work in our lives and in the world around us. And, and rather than just calling it that, they felt that they had to give it some sort of 
physicality to it. And so they began to talk about it as, as if Jesus had literally risen from the grave and that he ate fish and that he met with people and, and they just kind of developed it like that. But again, besides the fact that there was all kinds of witnesses to this event who could have either attested to it or denied it if it hadn't happened, there are a lot of major problems with this theory. First, you have to understand that in that day, no one believed that the Messiah would rise from the dead because no one believed that the Messiah would die. In that day, if you believed in the Messiah and he died, then you assumed, oops, we picked the wrong guy. And you would look for whoever came next and you would simply shift your allegiance to that guy and say, maybe this is our Messiah. And it was a pattern that repeated itself in the history of that day over and over and over again. Uh, in fact, if the early church had wanted to do that, they would have picked Jesus' brother James. He was deeply respected. He was a man of prayer. He was the brother of Jesus. He was the natural guy if they wanted to follow that pattern. They could have said, oh, not Jesus, James. But they didn't. No, no. Now, but, but let's suppose for a moment that they did, that, that they, they decided instead to go with this idea of Jesus' consciousness representing the resurrection. But let's apply that to a different so-called Messiah. The, the man who came to lead the Jewish people in revolt against the Romans in the year 66 AD, his name was Simon Bargiora. He led a revolt against the Romans until the year 70 when they put down the revolt and they captured Simon Bargiora. And they took him back to Rome, where they paraded him in chains through the streets, then publicly flogged him, and then crucified him as a public spectacle for everyone to celebrate their victory over the Jewish people. But let's suppose for a moment that, that after Simon Bar Giora had died, that one of his followers said, I really think that Simon was the Messiah. His buddies would turn to him and say, no, of course he's not the Messiah. He failed. He died. Everyone knows that the Messiah is supposed to come. He's supposed to rescue us from foreign domination. He's supposed to return the temple into power and as a place of worship. And he's supposed to bring justice to the world. That guy was definitely not the Messiah. But, but if the, the guy said, no, 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 I, I don't mean that he was the Messiah. I mean that he, he rose from the dead, his friend would look at him and say, what? I mean, that's not even a thing. People don't rise from the grave. We all know that. And then he said, no, no, what I mean is that I sense his spirit is with us. And he wants to continue his work through us. You know, if he just said that, his buddy would reach over and say, what, what are you drinking? I mean, not, nobody believes that. He just said, if you want a religious experience, there's lots of opportunity. Read your Bible, fast, pray. But nobody thinks that the spiritual consciousness of the Messiah is a work in us. It simply was not a concept in that day. No one would have made that kind of a leap. So that idea, as popular as it is, again, doesn't fit the realities of the historical situation. It simply wouldn't have happened. Which brings us back to the first Easter morning. If these theories don't account for that day, then, then the question is, what does? 
What accounts for the rapid and dramatic growth of the early church in a cultural context where there was no expectation that an individual would rise from the grave? What accounts for the widespread, almost universal, almost instant acceptance of all of those in the early church that Jesus had physically risen from the grave? And what accounts for such a radical worldview change among those who followed Jesus? The scholar N.T. Wright again says this, these changes are so striking in an area of human experience where societies tend to be very conservative that they force the historian to ask, why did they occur? What's going on? And he says that the problem that historians have is that they can't find a good explanation. And by historians, he means real historians who really study history in light of the historical method. He says all of the, all of the probable paths end in failure except for one. He goes on to write this. It is impossible to account for the early Christian belief in Jesus as Messiah without the resurrection. In other words, the, the logical, the most reasonable explanation is that Jesus actually literally physically rose from the grave on that Easter morning. Now, does that prove, therefore, that the resurrection happened? No, of course not. But, but as historians point out, you can't prove any historical event. Not, not like you can prove something in a lab with a beaker and, and a bunch of chemicals. I mean, you can't prove that, that Canada became a nation on July 1st, 1867. You, you weren't there. N none of us were there. Now, is there all sorts of evidence that it happened? Absolutely. There's a whole group of people who call themselves Canadians. There is, there is documents leading back to that day. The same as with the church. But you can't prove it in a scientific, formal way. But, but once you understand that's how history works, then you have to go back and say, well, what does the evidence seem to point? Where does the historical evidence prove or show? And again, N.T. Wright points out this. No other explanations have been offered in 2,000 years of sneering skepticism that can satisfactorily account for how the tomb came to be empty, how the disciples came to see Jesus, and how their lives and worldviews were transformed. Now, that, does that mean that, 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 you know, that kind of reasoning alone can force a person to believe in the resurrection? No, again, it, of course not. There's always room for intellectual doubt when it comes to historical events. On the other hand, what it does tell us is that belief in the physical, literal resurrection of Jesus is not a blind leap of faith, not by any stretch. It has left this enormous footprint, evidence everywhere. And the historical pattern seems to point that it's, it's because of a real event that happened. That's why it can't be easily written off as a hoax or, or a faddish conspiracy that just fades away. Faith in the resurrection of Jesus is not blind faith that re rejects reason. Rather, it's a faith that takes solid historical arguments and proof and, and transcends them. And again, people say, ah, there you go, faith. It's about faith. Well, yes, it is. But the fact of the matter is almost anything that is important that we base our life on is based on logic and evidence and faith. 
For instance, take your moral position. Whatever your moral position is, it's based on evidence and logic and your faith. You can't prove that your moral position is right in a lab. You hold it at some level of faith. Or your belief about human nature. Same thing, it's based on evidence and logic and some sort of faith about human nature. Same thing about how this whole universe came about, whether it came about of its own being or by, by the work of God. Again, it's based on, on logic and, and evidence and some point, some amount of faith. And the same is true when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Pretty much anything that is really important in our life that we base how we live on, based on logic and evidence and faith. And the Apostle Paul who was highly educated, and as I pointed out, who had deeply opposed the Christian faith uh, after he became a follower of Jesus. At one point, he was arrested and he was brought before uh, a Roman official, uh, a procurator named Festus, along with a a local king, a guy named Agrippa. And at one point, he was explaining to them his belief in the resurrection of Jesus. And Festus yells at him. He says, you're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. And Paul responds this way. He says, I'm not insane. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of these things has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. Paul says that the faith that he has in the resurrection is true and it is reasonable. In other words, he's not just making, you know, outrageous statements without, you know, any kind of backing. It's based upon reasonable, clear-headed arguments and on evidence. And he says to the king, look, this didn't happen in some corner somewhere. It's well known what happened. You yourself should know. Well, Paul emphasizes the historical and rational side of Christianity. He doesn't mean that that's all there is. Christianity, the, the, the faith of Jesus or faith in Jesus isn't just about a certain set of beliefs and a certain knowledge or acknowledgement that Jesus rose from the dead. The fact of the matter is, it's much more than that. It's about an ongoing relationship with the risen Jesus. That's why when the the two Marys arrive at the tomb, that the man is there in the tomb and he, he says that Jesus has risen and he says, go and tell his disciples that Jesus wants to meet with him in Galilee and tell Peter too. You see, the resurrection isn't just a historical thing. Jesus rose and disappeared. No, no, no. It's about a relationship. It's about a relationship that Jesus wants to have with his disciples in the place that they live, in Galilee, where they have their friends and where they work and, and where their family is and, and where, they, where they do all the things that, that they do. He says, I want to know you as the resurrected Jesus in your everyday life. But while Paul emphasizes the historical and the rational side of the Christian faith. It's much more than that. The Christian faith isn't just about a certain set of doctrines or assenting to a, a certain event that happened in history. It's about a relationship, about an ongoing relationship with the risen Jesus. That's why the two Marys, when they meet the angel in the tomb, he says to them, go and tell Jesus' disciples that Jesus wants to meet with them. In Galilee, in the place where they live and have their families and friends and where they work. And he wants to have a relationship with them in their regular life. And, and, and he adds, and go and tell 
than that Peter should come to. And if you know the story, you know that Peter denied Jesus. Not once, not even twice, three times he denied Jesus. And, and, and the angel has this message from Jesus. Make sure that you tell Peter, you too, who denied me, you come to. Because I want to be in a relationship with you. You know, this Easter, we celebrate that Jesus is alive. We celebrate that his resurrection is not some sort of legend that developed years later. It's not some sort of elaborate hoax that somehow took root in some strange way. It's not some quasi-spiritual sort of spiritual consciousness of Jesus' presence among us. No, no, no. Today we celebrate that Jesus is physically, literally alive, that he rose from the grave. We celebrate that he conquered sin and death. Today we celebrate that he is the forerunner, that one day we too will experience a resurrection as we follow after him. And we celebrate that his resurrection is not just about someday, but about today, about a relationship with him in this life. And that changes everything for us. It changes how we think and see the world. It changes how we act and how we live in our daily life. And, and it means that no matter where we find ourselves, whether our life is just going so grand or if we are in the hardest fight for our life, that because of our relationship with Jesus, in the midst of it, we have hope and strength and meaning and purpose and we have life because of the resurrection life of Jesus. Happy Easter. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. God, on this day, we come to you and we celebrate that Jesus is alive. God, we celebrate that he literally physically rose from the grave. And because of that, we can have new life in you. Because of that, we can have a relationship with you, a personal relationship because of what Jesus has done. And God, we, we celebrate today the truth of this, that, that our faith is both true and is reasonable. And God, we pray that this day in light of the resurrection, Lord, that we would be a people filled with joy that we would celebrate, that we would live in light of all of that, that, that this means that Jesus was dead and now he's alive. And so on this day, Lord, we, we worship you. We thank you. We praise you. We give our lives to follow after you. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.